This morning's reading comes from Acts 2, 15 through 24 and 36 through 41. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Christianity, the faith that most of you claim, makes an outrageous claim. An outrageous claim. Qualitatively different than most other religions. Here's the claim. The good news about Jesus Christ is for everybody. Everybody. Now, that might not seem like such an outrageous claim to those of us who have embraced it. But I want to remind you of what an outrageous claim it was on this particular day that we just read about. Why? Because the audience that heard Peter was predominantly Jewish. The audience that would later hear the proclamation of the gospel through Paul was not so Jewish. They were a part of the larger Greek culture in Rome. But here's what's true about religions, for the most part, this is a generalization, until this point in history. Most religions, until this point in history, were largely either classified by family or culture or regions of a particular country. There were the gods of the hills, the gods of the valleys, the gods in between, and the gods of the celestial beings. Another description or category of gods are the gods of the nations. 
If you ever read through the Psalms and the Hebrew Scriptures, you will routinely hear the prophets speaking, David does this a lot, about the gods of the nations who are idols. He would often say they're not true gods. But what you will not see explicitly in the Hebrew Scriptures, before the coming of Jesus Christ, is the good news concerning God's love for the whole world. Even the Jewish faith until this time was rather nationalistic. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. All religions were, for the most part. Peter steps up on this occasion at Pentecost in a Jewish audience and makes the most outrageous claim they'd ever heard of. And that was this. The good news about Jesus Christ is for everyone. You might not see it on the surface, but that's what he says. You may recall from your history textbooks that when powerful nations conquered less powerful nations, they routinely, ancient cultures, gave credit to their gods. Our gods are greater and more powerful than yours. That's why we conquered your nation. And for the most part, you're called to now worship our gods. On some occasions, it was somewhat pluralistic, but most of the time, if you were conquered, you worshiped that nation's God. Christianity is birthed in such a different way. Christianity doesn't conquer nations at the point of the sword and then tell those nations you have to worship our God. You say, wait a minute, pastor. I know a little bit of history. And I know the Christian church did that. Fair enough. It did. And it, the Christian church, on those occasions, was wrong. And when that objection comes up concerning my heritage, there's only one thing for me to do. It's to repent of my heritage. You know, here's an analogy. Every one of you has got a crazy uncle, right? He's nuts. He's practically a disgrace to the family. He's off in la-la land, and you want to pretend like you don't know him. <laughs> He's not related to you, but you know he is. And so what do you do? You routinely apologize for that crazy uncle if they happen to know you're related. There's something to the large history of the Christian church that I want to apologize routinely about. I want to say I had some great uncles who were off the rocker and they did some foolish things. Like they put the sword at the throat of someone who was not Christian and said, repent and be baptized or else you're going down. That happened, my friends. And it was wrong. It wasn't the good news. Never was. The good news of Jesus Christ never looked like that. Not from the beginning. That's why in the garden when Peter pulls out his sword and whacks off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus says, put that thing back in your sheath. 
We don't do that. My kingdom's different. My kingdom's a kingdom of love and it's for everyone. And then he goes and dies on a cross. Well, Peter is proclaiming that this good news about Jesus is for everyone. And you know why he did that, quite frankly? He did it because of what he heard from Jesus. He didn't decide that he was going to create a religion that was really big and would take over the world. That would be the most influential religion in the history of the world, which Christianity appears to be. He didn't plan it that way, nor did Paul. What they were doing was actually remembering the words of Jesus. When Jesus said things like, I am the light of, you want to finish that sentence for me? I'm the light of the world. When Jesus said concerning himself, I am the water of life. Light of the world? That's everybody. Water of life? The image is clear. You can't live without water. Jesus says, I'm the water for eternal life for everybody. Then he makes claims like, I'm the way, definite article. I'm the truth, definite article. I am the life, definite article. And then he counsels his disciples at the end of his life before he goes to the Father, his earthly life. He says, go to all the world and preach the gospel. Let me put it differently. Go into all the world and share the good news about me. And then when people receive the good news about me, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be with you wherever you go. He didn't say it in this statement, but I'm going to be with you when you get your head cut off. He could have, because Paul did. He was decapitated for sharing the good news. The good news concerning Jesus Christ, that it's for everybody, is a radical claim. And it was made first on the day of Pentecost. But how was it made? Here's how it was made. It wasn't so overt. It was made, this proclamation about the good news in the context of Jewish believers. That is people who devotely, who were devoted to God. Following what the Jewish people called Yahweh as God. And in that context, Peter steps into their history. And he says, I want to tell you something about your history and my history. Here's what you need to know about Peter's context when he shares the good news. First of all, everybody who was there was expecting the Messiah. Okay? So everybody he's listening to is anticipating the Messiah is going to come. Really, if you decided you were going to share the good news by starting out with that line, how much reception do you think you'd get? Most people would say, I don't even know who you're talking about. Messiah, what? What does that mean? Nobody had that question in this audience, okay? They were all expecting Messiah. So Peter steps into that tradition. And he basically says, in so many words, the Messiah has come. All right? Second thing he does. He steps into a tradition that actually believed the prophets in the Old Testament That is called the Hebrew Scriptures. Again, in your context of sharing the good news with someone who's not a part of the Christian faith, that would just be gibberish. The Old Testament prophets, they don't believe the Old Testament prophets for the most part. 
These people actually did. Furthermore, you know what they thought about the Old Testament prophets? They thought that the Old Testament prophets had given prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, predicted his coming, and all of them were waiting for the prophecies to be fulfilled. How many people do you run into like that today? Not many. But that was Peter's context. And so Peter steps into this context and he uses this phrase concerning that comes out of the prophet Joel. And he says, you know what just happened? You're accusing us of being drunk. First of all, we're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. The bars aren't open yet. (laughs) No, they didn't really have them like that, but they would drink by noon and later on. And he said, we're not drunk. We couldn't possibly be drunk. That's not the tradition around here. So it's not that. I'll tell you what it is. Instead of drunkenness, it's the Holy Spirit. Again, your audience would say, what? They didn't say that. They said, hmm, so what? Show us. He said, what you just actually heard, what you consider to be babbling, if it wasn't spoken in your language, was actually a prophecy fulfilled from Joel. When Joel said, there's going to come a day in the new age when the Messiah comes, where your sons and your daughters will prophesy, where it's not just Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Joel and Obadiah and the big guys. All kinds of people are going to prophesy. They're going to speak in this new era into the lives of other people. And they're not technically prophets. That's what just happened. You see, I'm not technically a prophet, says Peter. Nor is John or Thomas or any of the others. But we're speaking the good news about the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, if you're that audience, he's got you. Maybe for you, you're not God. But for them, they were in. They said, I understand what you're talking about. I'm tracking with you. Say more. But then he made a statement after he told them that this prophecy of Joel and Jesus being the Messiah was proved by mighty acts of miracles that he'd seen and they had seen. Then he moves to something else for proof. He says, and this mighty one sent from God was crucified. That's when he lost them. Now, granted, 3,000 of them came to faith. But that was the turn in the road that was really hard. Crucified Messiah? To them, in their context, that is an absolute contradiction. It's like hot ice. Yeah, that's about what it sounded like. Hot ice or cold fire. That may be a great name for a band. Is there a band like that? It probably is. It's a great name for a band, I guess, but it doesn't make any sense. You know it. Grammatically, it's just wrong. It doesn't flow. And that's the way they thought about the Messiah. Crucified Messiah, hot ice, cold fire. You're not making any sense, Peter. Peter said he was crucified. But then by the power of God, he was raised. God did this because the grave couldn't hold him, because he was sinless, in effect, without saying so much. He was the second person of the Trinity. He was son of God. You can't kill him. And then they woke back up. But about the time they woke up to this new revelation, 
which they would probably be buying into because you see, God can't die in their understanding. So it makes sense that Jesus Christ is son of God, Messiah, he couldn't die either. So this resurrection thing might actually make a little bit of sense. And then, then he pulls the trigger and he says, it's your fault. Our fault? First, if you were a part of that group, some of you might not even have been there when the crucifixion happened. Some of you may have been, but I would imagine some of them weren't. And they were thinking to themselves, our fault? Peter says, here's the problem. He was crucified by wicked men, and the reason he was crucified by wicked men, namely the Romans, is because you handed him over to them. And they're saying to themselves, I didn't do that. I'm not the Sanhedrin. I just watched it happen. And Peter says, it's your fault. Now, here's another interesting move he makes. He then says what seems like an absolute contradiction. It was your fault, but it was God's plan. Hold the phone. You're blaming me for something God initiated. Have I got that right, Peter? Yeah, you've got that right. How does that work? Notice his long explanation for how that works. No, you didn't notice it because it's not there. He just states it. You know what Peter, in effect, was doing? He was saying that individual freedom and action on our part is not a contradiction to the sovereign work of God in the world and history. If you're a believer, you're going to look at the historical events that are playing out in front of you, and you can't just say, that's just the responsibility of people. What you must say is that God is sovereign over all history, and people are responsible for their part. You know, if you're a philosopher, and I'm not professionally, but I did a whole lot of that stuff, and I really like it, You can spend endless hours on trying to sort out the difference between individual choice and God's choice, between human freedom and God's sovereignty. You can even come up with descriptions for it, like Armenian and Calvinist. You can do a lot of stuff, and you can spend a lot of time working on something that you'll never figure out. Never. Actually, some churches are built around one doctrine or the other. Welcome to ECC. We believe both. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) One of the things we say is that we need to embrace the tension. The mysterious tension between free will and divine sovereignty. We'll never figure it out. We have a lot of those issues but we don't talk about them so much. They're contradictions that appear in science and other places, but we accept them. Now, because we understand, but we can't figure out a better explanation. Some of the people in the history of the church have described these kind of doctrines as faith-seeking understanding. I accept by faith my responsibility, and I accept by faith God's sovereign work. And I seek to understand how that works out in my life. Interesting, isn't it? 
a conundrum. Peter speaks of it, but doesn't explain it. Then at the end of Peter's sermon, by the way, not all the words are here, right? He was as long-winded as me or more. Luke just summarized some things he said. This is kind of the outline of the sermon. By the end of the sermon, he gives an appeal, and the appeal comes in the form of a promise. He said, here's the promise. If you repent for your individual sins, which you all have, your responsibility, and are baptized, you'll receive forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Because God is so loving, God so loved the world that he came into the world, that not, the, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. God is waiting for you to admit who you are and just say, I'm a sinner and I'm the problem. <laughs> and I surrender myself to you because you're the solution. If you do that, says Peter, the blessing of the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on you. I know some of you here who have recently experienced that reality. You're trying to figure out words to explain what happened. It's the grace of God. Here's the promise, said Peter. Repent, believe, be baptized, and God's Spirit will forgive and bless you. That's an amazing sermon in a particular context. Before I conclude, I want to mention something. Next week, we're going to look at a different sermon in an entirely different context where Paul speaks to the people of Athens, a Greek philosophy bastion, if you will. And his message is so different. It's got nothing to do with the prophets. It doesn't have all the history of Israel wrapped up in it. It speaks to those people where they are. We'll look at that next week. The good news about Jesus Christ must be contextualized if it's going to be powerful and effective. And in this situation, Peter contextualizes it for a Jewish audience. And they see it and they believe. Your audience is not his. The contextualization of the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ for you is different. You'll need to figure that out. The good news concerning Jesus Christ is also big on the horizon of lots of issues. And one of them is things like justice. In the third week, we're going to talk about global justice issues at our missions conference. Because when you insert the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world, you cannot ignore the issues that you saw in this video. Because the good news is for body and soul, and it's for everyone on the face of the earth. The good news of Jesus Christ is gigantic. It's outrageous. It's inclusive. Just a few comments um, for you to think about. I want to suggest that your opportunity to share the good news in whatever venue may come because of criticism or persecution. That happened here. Did you notice? 
the accusation, you guys are nuts. You've had too much to drink this early in the morning. Peter takes the opportunity, stepping into the criticism, to say, no, that's not true. Let me tell you why. How many times in your life of faith has someone accused you of believing something that really you don't believe and called it Christian? Accused you of being a kind of person that they know some Christians are. Take it as an opportunity. Don't be offended. Can I say this? Put on your big boy pants. People criticize. People persecute. And it's an opportunity to share the good news. That's what Peter did. Second thing I want to mention is this. The good news about Jesus Christ must be contextualized. And you are in a particular context. Don't know where you are, but your context is unique to other people's context. And not all the same things that your friend says in sharing the gospel are going to work for you in your context. You have to be open to your context and see the need and address the good news there. Don't try to reproduce the way someone else produces the good news in their context. Third thing... um, I want to say about the good news is the good news is actually the opposite of what it's accused of being. The good news of Jesus Christ is not exclusive. It's inclusive. That's the point of the good news. It's for everybody. In spite of your nationality or your gender or your family or your lifestyle, or your sin, or your stupidness. It's for you. Sometimes it's um, called exclusive. And sometimes you're annoyed by that statement, aren't you? Use that statement as an opportunity to show that it's inclusive. Also, I want to say concerning that topic, that part of the reason that we have a negative reputation when we share the good news is our fault. Why? Because frequently, not all of us, but some of us start out in our attempt to share the good news by beginning with condemnation and judgment. Some people are really good at that. And the people who are really good at that are just not reading Jesus. Because Jesus didn't. An angry proclamation of the good news is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? A little bit like hot ice. How can you angrily proclaim good news? You shouldn't. It's good news. But some people apparently try to. They start with condemnation, and then they turn people off. So what is the sharing of the good news? In 
every individual context, it's always different. In every individual context, it's just this. You say to another, I found the pathway to incredible, eternal life and peace with God. I'd like to share it with you. That's the good news. Now, I know what some of you are thinking because you're like me. You're thinking to yourself, I'm not any good at that. <laughs> um, I couldn't sell water to someone who was dying of thirst, right? I, I just, I can't do that. I'm not a salesman. I can't share the gospel that way. I tell people about the good news and they just look at me like I'm crazy. Well, welcome to the club. A lot of people do that. But I understand you. Because I'm not good at it either. I might sound like it up here, but in person I'm not. I fumble and stumble. I feel like a fool. And I walk away saying that was a failure. I would say that my gift is not personal evangelism like it is some people's gift. It's just not. And then in the same breath, I would say, I know some of you are identifying with me. And you're thinking, I don't know how to share the good news. And here's what I want to say. Yes, you do. Why? Because the good news is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And everywhere you go, if you embrace the reality that Christ is in you, the hope of glory, you become a reflective light to the world. And on any number of occasions, without saying a word. Maybe you're not articulate. Maybe you're not bold. But you're a Christ follower. Just be that. And let the love and light of Christ draw people to him. That's the first thing. Second thing is my last point. There are some people in this room who are really good at evangelism. I don't know how they do it. I'm talking about personal evangelism. It's about as easy as falling off a log for them. They can walk into the context of an entirely strange room with people who don't even know them and figure out a way to tell those people about Jesus. And often those people will say, wow, that's interesting. Tell me more. You know what happens when I do that? For the most part, people just think I'm nuts. But other people, it's mysterious. They have the gift. And I'm looking out at some of you, and I know you have the gift. I'm going to name one, okay? He's not here because I've been scanning the audience, and if he's here, he can duck. <laughs> a friend of mine, he's in a small group with me. His name's Brandon York. That guy's got the gift. I'm telling you that 
fella can tell people about Jesus faster and more gracefully than anybody I've ever seen. And if he had notches in his belt, you know, which he doesn't, for all the people he led to Jesus, he'd go all the way around. That's just who Brandon is. So here's my advice for us going out this week. One, embrace the reality that you, every one of you who's a Christ follower, is also a person who shares the good news, even if just with your life, silently. Embrace it, believe it, pray it. God, make me a light in the world. Second, now don't everybody go to Brandon. If you know somebody... (laughs) At ECC, and you look at him and you think, you know, that's that fellow or that girl's gift. This week, send them an email, give them a call, catch them after church, and do this. Say, I've noticed the gift of evangelism that God has given you. And I want to say thank you. I want to tell you I'm praying for you. See, that's the way to extend the good news beyond your ability is to encourage others in the body of Christ to do what you can't do in the same way. That's the blessed uniqueness of the body of Christ. All of us are wired differently and all of us have the ability to share that good news. You might know someone who does it better than you or differently than you. Tell them so and tell them you're praying for them. That will be an incredible encouragement to them. I know you know somebody like that. Give them that good news. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to uh, be a part of this grand thing called the good news of Jesus Christ for the whole world. We pray that you will um, keep us from making foolish decisions as we share the good news. Also, Lord, keep us from feeling pressured as we try to share the good news. You've created us uniquely. We have our own individual set of gifts. And when we try to be someone else, it only looks fake. Help us to be ourselves. And give us those opportunities to embrace our way of sharing the good news. And give us encouragement that you're working through us even silently. We also pray, Lord, especially for those um, who have a, a rather visible, vocal way of sharing the good news. They just, they just have the gift to speak it. We pray for them this week, Lord, wherever they are, wherever they go, that you will encourage them by your spirit, but also encourage them through us. Uh, that, that that gift is a blessing. And we want them to use it. And we're praying for them as they do. And then, Lord, because of that effort on our part, we pray that you will um, increase the visibility of your good news and the presence of your news in the world. And that uh, because we follow you, uh, your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. We please stand as we respond to worship.